Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. Millions of tourists visit Washington, D.C. every year, vying to see its landscape, museums, and buildings, and learn about seminal moments and people in U.S. history. Attracting white evangelicals to the nation's capital, Christian heritage tours contribute to the thriving tourist industry in D.C., In Saving History, How White Evangelicals Tour the Nation's Capital and Redeem a Christian America, Lauren R. Kirby examines how white evangelicals perceive themselves and their role in American life through an analysis of the narratives told by Christian Heritage Tours. A rich ethnographic study that transports the reader to Washington, D.C., Saving History offers a unique analysis of Christian heritage, white evangelical identity, and the role of evangelicals in American society. Lauren R. Kirby is lecturer on religious studies and education specialist for the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. Hi, Lauren, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me. So to start us off, I'm wondering if you can maybe explain to us what exactly are Christian heritage tours and what purpose do they serve? Sure. So a lot of you, like me as a child, have probably traveled to Washington, D.C. It's a great tourist city. Um, tons of museums, historic sites, memorials, all kinds of stuff. Um, and Christian heritage tours to DC are very much like that. Um, so if you're thinking that they only go to churches or it's like a religious revival, it's really not. It's really a very ordinary tour. You stand in line forever at the Capitol, you do that tour, you see some special sites, you take lots of selfies. Um, in many ways, they would be very familiar to anyone. Um, What's different is really the stories that they tell. Um, Folks sign up for Christian heritage tours because they want to hear what they call the Christian history of the United States. They are not looking for sort of a capacious history, um, sort of the diversity, the struggle, the conflict that uh, many of us would see in American history and that is represented in D.C., what they're really interested in are hearing stories about Christian leaders and the Christian God's intervention at key moments in American history. So as they tour these different sites, that's really the focus of what they're talking about. That's what their guides lecture on, and it's what they're interested in. Um, So when you're at the Lincoln Memorial, for instance, one tour I observed, um, there was actually a tour where we didn't talk about slavery at all. But we talked a lot about Lincoln's uh, religious identity and some of the debates about how Christian he really was. Um, They were quite convinced that he was a deeply Christian man. Um, And we talked a little bit about sort of the biblical rhetoric in the Gettysburg Address on the Wall and the second inaugural. Um, There's just sort of a different shift in focus in terms of what they're paying attention to in the D.C. landscape and how that fits into this particular strand of American history that they understand as America's Christian history. 
And what made you want to do a study on Christian heritage tours in DC? (laughs) It's a great question. Um, It was not because I wanted to go on vacation multiple times. Believe me, these are not restful. Um, The folks on these tours get up at dawn and go to bed at 10 p.m., really eager to get their money's worth out of the tour. Um, What fascinated me was really thinking about sort of religious nationalism in the United States and the sacred sites of that nationalism. And D.C. is, um, for I think obvious reasons, the center of sort of Christian nationalist ideas of the United States. Um, It's the the axis mundi, to use Eliana's term, um, where you get sort of that immediate connection, not just to God, but really to the founders. There's a lot of uh, discussion there about following in the founders' footsteps, much like you would hear on a tour of Israel from evangelicals talking about walking where Jesus walked, um, which Hillary Kale has a great study of. Um, so I was just interested to see how that would play out. Um, like any good ethnography, I wasn't totally sure what I would find. Um, you know, you learn a ton from this kind of research because your subjects are your, your material and your sources. Um, and it helps me also see the importance of material culture and sort of the multiple ways that uh, materiality and sort of the objects and iconography of DC factor into this uh, construction of Christian nationalism. Um, so I started with that like very narrow interest of like Christian nationalism and sacred sites, and it turned into um, sort of a investigation of the stories that compose identity and how materiality plays into that. So it, it went in interesting directions I didn't really expect. I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of what these tours entail, um, how long they tend to be, what sites are visited, what is the typical itinerary, and who the participants tend to be. Sure. Um, the tours vary in length. The majority of them were about four days, um, which includes like travel in the morning and evening on the, the sort of beginning and end days. Um, they really visited the big sites um, and they would prioritize depending on how much time they had. So not all of them went out to Mount Vernon, um, but the longer tours made time for that. What everyone visited was the Capitol, the Supreme Court, and the Library of Congress. Those were all really essential. They visited the memorials uh, for Vietnam, the Korean War, uh, and the Lincoln Memorial, and they all visited Arlington Cemetery. Those were sort of the core pieces. Um, And then the add-ons, if they had additional time or if there was a free afternoon and tourists were given their liberty to just explore what they wanted, uh, they might go to the National Archives was a really popular choice. Um, Ford's Theater was occasionally uh, a popular choice. Sometimes the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of American History. Um, so sort of, sort of like what, as I said earlier, just like what a, what a typical tour of DC might include, just like the major, uh, major tourist sites that anyone would want to see if they're in the city. As for who goes on these tours, they were really from all over the country. And I often hear from folks, they expect that these tours are coming from the American South because that's typically the region most associated with white evangelical Christianity. Um, But I really got 
uh, tourists from like the four corners of the continental United States. Um, we had the people from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we had people from Los Angeles. We had, we did have folks from the, the American South. We had folks from New England. Um, it was really pretty varied. What was consistent uh, was they were almost all white. Um, the racial homogeneity was really striking. Um, they tended to be older, like they've been married along enough that their children were along on the trip and able to appreciate it. Um, so couples in their 40s or so with their children, um, and then a number of grandparents and retirees either traveling uh, with their partners or traveling with uh, their grandchildren and sometimes three generations of the same family. Uh, so it was really, really a family affair. In many cases, there were very few solo travelers. I stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, but they were, they were doing this sort of uh, visit to D.C. to pass on knowledge to the next generation um, as well as to learn it for themselves. So there's, there's a lot of intergenerational uh, sort of transfer happening in these spaces. I'm also wondering if you could talk briefly about how you conducted this research. How many tours did you participate in and how many interviews did you conduct after the tours took place? Yeah, I, uh, particip I participated in nine of these tours. As I said, most of them are about four days, so that was the majority of what I did. I also did a very short one that was just sort of it. They only spent one night in D.C., um, but they packed in as much as they could on the days on either side. And the longest tour I did was seven full days in D.C. Um, they saw everything, um, and they were... Uh, it was exhausting, really, to have them uh, to be to be doing that for seven days. I could tell they needed a vacation afterwards. Um, a lot of my data in the book comes from the tours themselves. It comes from the really informal conversations I had with people um, on the bus and standing in line, which we did a lot of. And I was usually able. I took a lot of notes on my phone. You know, being a millennial, I can get away with being on my phone all the time. Um, People don't think it's weird. So I would, generally I could take notes as tour guides were talking, but when I was just talking with um, the tourists themselves, it was usually something that I was like making notes to myself and then I reconstructed the conversation as soon as I could afterwards. But those conversations were incredibly valuable. Um, just hearing what was coming up for people at different sites, hearing what they expected, like how their, their assumptions about what they'd find might have been disrupted or met. Um, Lots of interesting material came out of that. And also just observing how do they respond? You know, what are they, what, what are they drawn to? What do they want to see? What do they take pictures of? Um, what's their like emotional state um, as they're going through and sort of paying attention to that, that set of group dynamics is really important. I did conduct semi-structured interviews after the fact. Um, I had initially thought I could do it during the tours, but there was absolutely no time for an extended conversation. Um, so we ended up doing phone interviews after people had returned home. Um, and I did that with 29 tourists. And those tended to be at least an hour each. Um, folks had a lot to share. Um, and it was particularly women who were willing to talk to me. I think this is an interesting dynamic of a white evangelical group. Um, is the men were really unwilling to talk to a young woman uh, without their wife present. 
Um, so I did some of the couples interviews together uh, just to work around that and be able to get their perspectives as well. So you argue that evangelicals see themselves as founders, exiles, victims, and saviors, which is how you actually divide the book. Um, mm -hmm. What do you mean by this? And how do Christian heritage tours perpetuate these narratives and identities? Yeah, these are, these are four roles that I see evangelicals playing in culture broadly and that I think are really crystallized and formed in DC. So obviously I didn't know going into this project that what I was gonna get out of it was this typology of founders, exiles, victims, and saviors that reflects broader trends in evangelical culture. Um, but what I did see was a competing set of stories uh, that came up on these tours at the various sites. And I observed how people were shifting back and forth between them. So one story is what I call in the book, uh, the insider narrative, this idea that white evangelicals are really the heirs to the founders of the nation. Christians are the rightful uh, inheritors of the United States, um, that this is a Christian nation, all these things that really put Christianity at the center of American life. Um, that's one narrative, and they would tell that frequently. That is a large part of why they were pointing out Christian iconography in various spaces and telling these stories about uh, great Christian leaders in history and about uh, God's intervention in key moments. But they shifted really quickly from that narrative into this profound sense of alienation and Again, what I call in the book the outsider narrative, this idea that Christians are actually not at the center of the nation at all. They've been pushed to the margins and bad things are going to happen as a result of that. So it's all part of a Jeremiah about the nation and this idea that once Christianity was really central to the United States, that now it is uh, sort of pushed out of its rightful place. That's the, the outsider narrative. So I would see them shifting between these two narratives and notice some of the nuances in them and was able to identify I, these four distinct roles that they played or how they see themselves in relationship to the nation. So they do see themselves as founders. They see themselves as the heirs to George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Um, that is all very much a part of how they understand themselves as Americans, but they also see themselves as exiles, um, that sense of being uh, deposed from their rightful place of authority. Um, and that sense of an exile of wanting to return home is really strong in those moments when they're playing the exile role. They're really committed to taking back the nation, to reclaiming Christian power, to getting the nation back on the right track. These are all phrases that came up repeatedly uh, in the tours and in the interviews I did. And a little bit different from that, different enough that I really thought it was worth separating out is their role as victims. Um, and to be an exile is to want to return to something. To be a victim is really just to want justice for yourself, perhaps, or to want fair treatment. Uh, to want the victimization to end. And it's a much narrower sort of claim about 
how they should be treated. So when they're acting in a victim role, it's less of a, a move to reclaim the Christianity of the nation as a whole and more of an argument for protecting Christians from a hostile government and world. Um, and you did see that uh, a lot in, especially their discussions of current law and policy. Um, I was conducting these interviews during the Obama administration, so there was a lot of uh, things in the administration that gave them fodder for this idea of being victimized. Um, and they saw, the last thing I'll say on the victim piece uh, is they saw the, the Christian iconography of DC also as potential victims. So in the same way that Christians were being victimized, uh, treated unfairly, persecuted, etc., they were afraid that the Christian iconography of the capital would also be victimized, that it would be removed or destroyed or misinterpreted. Um, so they really, in some ways, identified strongly in these two roles as exiles and victims with the Christian materiality that they encountered in those wars. The last role is saviors, and I think this is the one that brings everything together, and it also helps make sense of some of the more contemporary uh, challenges in understanding white evangelicals' political behavior. Um, so the savior narrative was about who was going to do this work of reclaiming the country and why it needed to happen. So this Jeremiah in which the country has fallen into sin and moral disarray, um, they need a hero. They need a prophet or a savior to come in and do the work to get the country back on track. And they really saw themselves and especially their children as the people who are going to do that work. Um, building on their experiences as founders, they knew they had the right to do that work of salvation. Building on their experience as exiles and victims that also fed into this idea of we're coming back from this really persecuted underdog kind of place to reinstitute, uh, reclaim uh, this nation that is critical to the salvation of the world. And I'm happy to say more about that at any point. But the thing about the savior narrative um, is that saviors, being a savior is dangerous. Uh, being a savior uh, if we think of Jesus, even Jesus died, um, there's a real risk involved. And particularly when these groups visited uh, Arlington National Cemetery or any of the war memorials, that's where the savior narrative really came up with that sense of deep sacrifice and willingness to sacrifice for a Christian America in their particular way of imagining it. Um, so these roles all sort of played together. Um, and they do map on to how white evangelicals participate in American culture more broadly. Um, and we see that in responses to pop culture, we see that in politics right now. Um, so I think what's helpful about these tours is it's a very condensed stage to observe a lot of, uh, a lot of stories about the nation and the different ways evangelicals cast themselves in those stories 
so that when we're looking at the nation in sort of a broader sense or a different context, uh, we can we can start to anticipate sort of what their motivations might be, what actions they might take, um, and just start to make sense. So like this is a particular worldview and understanding of what it is to be a Christian American, and how does that play out such that their political decisions right now make sense? I'm wondering if we could unpack the outsider identity of white evangelicals a little bit more. Um, some listeners may be wondering how evangelicals who yield a lot of power and influence in the U.S. can claim they are victims and outsiders. So I'm wondering, why do they make this claim? What purpose does it serve? And how do heritage tours perpetuate this identity? Absolutely. And I'm going to go out on a limb and make, use a sports metaphor here. Um, I'm not a sports fan, full disclosure, but I have friends who are sports fans. And what they tell me is that everyone in the United States basically roots for the Cubs. And everyone in the United States, except my home of New England, hates the Patriots. And I bring this up because it really reveals in a very non-religious uh, context that we love underdogs. Uh, this is a country that cheers for David over Goliath. Uh, we cheer for the brave little American patriots coming up against the might of the British Empire. Woven through our history is this sense of we're the underdog, and the underdog is sort of the one who occupies the moral high ground. And I talk in the book about some of the sources in Christian tradition and American history that go into this deep story about what it is to be an underdog and why we would support them. Um, so what's gained by being an outsider is you get to occupy that moral high ground. You get the sort of sympathy of a public that loves cheering for the little guy. Um, there's a lot of sort of public relations that goes into this, um, but it also has legal ramifications. If you are a marginalized outsider seeking protection for your particular practices, um, you might get it. You might have sympathetic legislators or a sympathetic court that says, yeah, you know what? You are being oppressed by this larger entity that you really have no chance to stand against. Like it's a, it's just a compelling story that has proven very politically effective. And this is the position that white evangelicals took on um, around the 1970s and 80s with the rise of the religious right. And it was very explicitly and carefully cultivated by folks like Jerry Falwell and Ralph Reed and Pat Robertson, um, and continues to be perpetuated uh, by their successors, by Franklin Graham, by Jerry Falwell Jr., um, by some of the, the major leaders of the New Christian right. The outsider piece, how do they how do they shore that up? I think might be the question. So that, you know, there's a benefit to it, but how do they persuade uh, their audiences that they really are victims. And a lot of it hinges on this idea of religious freedom and ways that they've sort of reconfigured how they and many others understand what it means to have the freedom of religion, to have, have non-discrimination uh, against religion in the United States. Um, so court cases play a big role in this. The Masterpiece Cake Shop decision was a really important one. Um, in that, uh, Justice Kennedy argued for the majority, essentially that um, a Colorado, uh, one of the members of the Colorado Commission on Human Rights had 
argue that religion has done bad things in history, essentially, um, which any historian of religion knows that religion has its dark moments as much as its light moments. Um, but Kennedy understood that and they made a really compelling argument to the court that that was actually discrimination, that that was persecution, that there was this establishment, this secular establishment, saying mean things and untrue things about uh, the religious people who were just seeking their rights. Um, and that, I mean, it won a, Supreme, a major Supreme Court case. Um, so I, I think we can see places that this is effective, but they, they look to things like that. Um, moments where uh, people have disagreed publicly with particular conservative interpretations, usually about sexuality or abortion, it tends to be really focused on culture wars issues like that. Um, and they really sort of heighten the drama of that tension between themselves and everyone else in order to cast themselves as a marginalized group that's really in need of protection, despite, as you said, um, the really long history of Christian dominance of American politics and culture that I would certainly argue is very much still in place. Um, you demonstrate how participants of Christian heritage tours experience feelings of belonging and displacement during their time touring DC. Um, I particularly liked how you, when you talked about um, how alienating these tours can be just with the heat of the summer or even mm -hmm. just waiting in lines and the, the whole process of security and, and what toll that sort of takes on, mm -hmm. on the participants. But in, in any case, um, so how did the tours themselves perpetuate these feelings of belonging and displacement? And then how does that connect to how white evangelicals see themselves as insiders and outsiders in the U S absolutely. Um, as you, as you mentioned, um, it's not really possible to answer this question without talking about that just physical experience of being a tourist. Um, they are getting up at dawn, they're going all day, their feet hurt, it's really hot, it's humid. Um, the food is not good, to be perfectly honest. Um, they're really just physically uncomfortable for much of this process. And um, they're also experiencing the constant invasion of going through security, uh, which is not enjoyable for anyone, I think, um, but having to take off their belts, empty their pockets, this like experience of being a suspicious outsider that has to be checked over before they enter the building, I think was a really big part of why they felt so separate from DC. It wasn't just that for most of them, it was a new city. It was very different from their hometowns, whatever those may be. Um, it was kind of overwhelming. I mean, DC is built on a sort of, uh, grand scale designed to intimidate. Um, but some of it was just that constant reminder that they don't belong here. They can't just hold up their ID badge and waltz right through security like some of the folks we saw. Um, they're always going to be outsiders who have to go through this ritual to get into the spaces they want to access. It also came, the sense of outsiderhood, it also came really from the stories they were telling about current events, um, as well as history, but especially current events in my experience. Um, so talking about a particular thing Barack Obama might have said, or a particular court case at, the, at this point, um, the, uh, the Obergefell decision was in progress. Um, so they knew there was going to be 
something happening with regard to same-sex marriage, and they were very, very pessimistic uh, about the outcome. So there were, I think a lot of it was embodied, but a lot of it was also just um, some of the tour guides, not all of them, but many of them, sort of sought to rile people up in a way and to, to remind them that the world is against them, that they are a unique select group that has a particular obligation to the nation because they are able to see the truth where everyone else only sees lies. Okay, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difference between history and heritage. Um, are Christian heritage tours presenting an accurate account of U.S. history? Well, and that's even a, like, how do you, what, what is accurate history? But anyways, mm-hmm. that's a whole other conversation. But, um, and if not, what are Christian heritage tours presenting to their participants? I think I'm going to dodge the question about accuracy because anyone who's been through a theory and method class or a historiography class knows how complicated that would be. But yes. the real difference, I think, between history and heritage is the purpose. What are you doing it for? Are you seeking to understand the path, the past, uh, warts and all, or are you seeking a particular version of the past, a really shiny, beautiful version of the past that you can celebrate and that you can use to shore up the identity of a particular cultural group who can lay claim to that past? The latter one is heritage, and that's really what the focus is for these groups. Um, they are aware that the stories they tell are critiqued by academic historians. In fact, that's part of what goes into that outsider feeling is knowing that academics are just have no patience for the particular history they offer and rarely engage it. And if they do engage it, it's to offer sort of a, a blistering critique because historical methods are just very different from what they are doing with this creation of heritage. So I think the heritage piece, it's really, any history is about, you are always selecting what pieces of the story to tell. And we historians know that quite well. And with heritage, they're selecting these pieces that fit together. And in some ways saying it's the only part that counts. So heritage doesn't include that the founders had that some of the founders had slaves, um, because that detracts from this grand, uplifting narrative of American history in which the founders are sort of morally flawless and founding a, a morally pure republic. Um, so heritage lets them pick and choose and sort of string together these moments that only tell one strand of the story so that it can make them feel like the founders, uh, like the heirs to the founders, and be able to play that role and really grab on to both the idea that Christians are insiders in the United States and that America is exceptional, that it is divinely chosen, all of this sort of idealization of the United States that goes into Christian nationalism. Um, Heritage is feeding into that by virtue of being very selective about which parts of the story are told. And I think it's worth noting that the pieces that get lifted up tend to be dominated by white men, particularly elite white men. 
um, dominated by pastors, dominated by people who left behind uh, various writings, um, whether it was books or letters, personal papers. Um, and that already in itself really limits what you're seeing when you look to this kind of a past. Um, so I, I think there's a reason for that. There's a reason they're, they're holding up um, these particular white male leaders uh, from American history. Um, there is occasionally the anomalous woman or person of color who plays a supporting role, um, but it's, it's really a story of great white men and their God and their work together to build a Christian nation that is now sort of at risk and in need of a new savior. So you just mentioned um, how academics tend to criticize or critique um, the version of history that these tours present. And that serves as a nice segue to um, a question about you and your identity as a researcher with these groups. And you mentioned it throughout the book um, about how um, your identity granted you access or maybe was as a presented as a barrier in particular you mentioned even earlier about how men wouldn't be interviewed with, uh, by you without their wives present anyhow i'm just curious um, if you can maybe talk a little bit about your identity as researcher with the groups that you um were researching and if your identity as an academic served as a barrier since there seems to be this real tension between um these evangelical groups and um and academics more broadly Definitely. And that tension was constantly present. Um, I don't want to spoil the first scene of the book because it's my favorite, but I will say that, yes, they viewed me with extreme skepticism right off the bat. And then um, there, there were some, uh, some tense conversations, particularly with some of the tour guides, um, really arguing about what history is and what good academics can do. Um, which in their view is very little, uh, just to be clear. Um, but there really was a, a deep skepticism of me as an academic. And I think, I, t I do say in the book, and I, I really do think it was essential that I was young, I was a graduate student, and I'm a woman. Um, I was not someone who posed some sort of visible threat. Um, I did not seem like the type of person who would write a takedown of David Barton uh, the way some historians have. So I was, and I was, um, you know, I was there, I was there genuinely to learn from them and to, to hear what they were thinking. Um, I wasn't there to argue by any means. Um, it was sometimes uncomfortable for the ones who knew I was, you know, studying American history. Uh, they would ask me to verify what the tour guides had said, um, or they'd ask me for additional details. And I really downplayed anything um, that I knew I would sometimes add something that I'd heard from the guide on a different tour. If it was someone on a repeat tour, um, or I would add something from a different guide, but I, I really tried to sort of, um, still speak within the tour. I wasn't there to, to disrupt it, um, or to correct it or do anything like that. Um, and I, I also should say they were, they were really welcoming of me. I mean, they looked out for me. I was a young woman by myself. Um, when we did have sort of solo time, I, I always had an invitation to join a family or a group. Um, they were really interested in making sure I felt welcome. They were really eager to talk to me about 
uh, really not about my research, but really like about my family, about my friends in Boston, what my life was like. Um, they prayed for me. They prayed for my family. Um, they were really like, even though I was an academic and a sort of like hostile outsider and all the narratives they were telling for me as a person, they were really welcoming um, and made it a lot easier for me to be in that space and just get to know them as people. So let's talk a little bit about material culture, which factors into um, a lot, of, of course, it factors into these tours and into the, um, the narrative that these tours are telling, um, and in particular, Christian iconography, which happens to be all over DC. So first, I'm wondering if you could explain to us what you mean by ambient religion and how Christian iconography factors into Christian heritage tours. Absolutely. Ambient religion is one of my favorites analytical tools that I discovered in the course of this project. Um, and I just, I shout out to Matthew Engelke and Hilary Kale, who are people who have, Matthew coined the term, um, and Hilary has also written some really remarkable work with it. So I'm, I'm grateful to the people who've set the groundwork for what I'm doing with this term. Um, ambient religion is a way of thinking of religion, not as just present or absent. Um, but thinking about religion as something that you notice or something that recedes into the background. So when we're looking at all of this stuff in D.C., um, you know, the Laos Dale on top of the Washington Monument, there's inscriptions over Union Station, there's statues of Christians all through the Capitol. Um, you know, it's, it's really everywhere. And most people who are not there with a Christian guide, particularly I'm thinking Union Station, do not notice that. Um, it remains sort of in the background or latent. It's not part of what they see. Um, and that's a, feed, uh, that's a product of it being ambient. It's just, it's sort of there. And what Christian heritage tours do is they activate that ambient religion. They bring it into the foreground and draw people's attention to it. Um, and that makes it visible for them in a way that it wasn't for others. It's important to know that uh, Ambient religions, as it shifts in and out of focus, that can happen without sort of the prompting of a person. Um, that can happen because a beam of sunlight strikes it in just the right way and someone notices, oh, hey, there's an inscription from the Bible right there on the MLK memorial. Um, it can happen because construction precludes you from seeing a particular piece of thing. Um, and so you, you're not able to sort of see the full thing and you don't notice it. You just walk right by it because it's just scaffolding. Um, so there's, there's different factors that go into making, uh, the ambient Christianity of DC visible or invisible at different points, but there's a lot of it. Um, it is, it really is everywhere. I mean, the, one of the purposes of traveling to DC is sort of to use this material culture as proof of the Christian heritage story. Um, they can tell the Christian heritage story everywhere if they do. I mean, you can tell it in sermons, in books, in artwork, um, in music. There's, there's all kinds of ways and sort of evangelical subculture that this story gets told. But what DC offers is proof, um, this sort of physical proof that cannot be replicated in a different context. So it is essential for these tours that they make that proof visible, um, even as there are moments when they really want it to be invisible because they want to feel like outsiders or they want 
tourists to understand that, you know, this, this statue is here right now, but it not, might not be, um, which is very relevant to our current moment. These like deep anxieties that the religion that we're seeing that is visible to us right now might become invisible. Um, it might go back into the background, be ignored or removed. Um, so what ambient religion does is just think about that in this more complex way, in this way that uh, brings in both human agency and also how the surroundings sort of shape the experience of encountering a religious object. So it becomes much more complicated than just something's there or it's not. So I'm wondering if we could unpack a little bit the presence of all uh, the presence of this of all the Christian iconography in DC and how that disrupts the outsider narrative. So how do mm-hmm. tour guides and the participants themselves sort of understand how do they how do they interpret that? How does that mm-hmm. fit the narrative? I am curious if you can unpack that for us. Absolutely. It seems really strange to be standing in front of a giant inscription of In God We Trust uh, in the Capitol Visitor Center. It's, you know, three feet high and say Christians are marginalized. Christians are victims. Christians are exiled from the center of power. Like there, there's a real uh, sort of cognitive dissonance there. Um, and the way they do that is the way they, they navigate that is through telling stories about other objects that have perhaps been removed, displaced, destroyed, misinterpreted, or um, through talking about that specific object that they're looking at and saying, you know, get your pictures now because it might not be here. And saying sort of presenting these uh, moments of Christian materiality as sort of vestigial remains um, from a great, once great Christian nation. This is when they're speaking in the outsider narrative. Um, those same objects are sometimes used as proof of like, yeah, this is a Christian nation. Christians should be in charge. We should be, you know, um, we're the heirs to the founders. So the, the objects can really play different roles. Um, but the, I'm thinking of particularly like the Supreme Court's freeze is a really common story that came up on tours because um over the Supreme Court bench um, on the freeze in the court building is uh, a tablet that would probably look familiar to many people from Sunday school. I'm not saying this is a stretch, um, but there's a tablet with the numbers one through 10 on it. Um, and the, the, uh, the disagreement is what do those numbers stand for? Um, And I think it's pretty understandable for folks who have been going through D.C. and seeing different uses of the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's all over the archives. Um, There's an engraving of the Ten Commandments on the doors of the Supreme Court. Like The city is saturated with the Ten Commandments um, and Moses. Like, there's, it's everywhere. So I don't think they're totally off base when they automatically assume, oh, look, it's the Ten Commandments. It must be the Ten Commandments, you know, over the Supreme Court. You know, that's law. And of course, we're in the, the like highest court in the land. So they're going to represent the Ten Commandments. Um, but the Supreme Court actually uh, interprets those as the Bill of Rights, those numbers one through 10. And, you know, <laughs> interpretation is what it is. We can uh, 
we can disagree on this, but the purpose the story serves is really to heighten that sense of alienation and to make tourists feel like what they think is really obvious evidence of Christianity. Um, there's just a, a campaign by the secular left, quote unquote, um, to erase Christianity or to misinterpret it or to remove it from the story of the nation. So they bring in, I mean, sometimes these are, I mean, th this one is very real. Um, this is exactly how the Supreme Court has interpreted it for decades. Um, there are all kinds of debates over a letter from the sculptor and the artist um, over what this means, none of which are verified. So it's, it's a contentious debate that has no resolution, um, but it really serves the purpose of fueling this sense of being an outsider, even in a, they're standing in a building where Moses is on the opposite, like on the outside. Um, he's on the opposite side of this wall. Um, so it's, it's just interesting how they choose particular pieces of the landscape to highlight in some cases so that they can downplay them and talk about how threatened they are. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of the sites that were not well received by the tourists. Um, you demonstrate how some sites were uncomfortable, unsettling, and reinforced the outsider narrative um, and that sense of alienation. I'm thinking in particular about the National Cathedral, Supreme Court, and government buildings. So could you talk a little bit more about these uncomfortable visits and what made them unsettling for the tourists? Certainly. And those are great examples of sites where there, the discomfort was really, really visible. Um, the National Cathedral, only one group went there. Um, a number of groups sort of intentionally skip it, which is another story. But when they were there, it was, for many of them, their first experience in any kind of like Gothic structure. Um, this is not a frequent experience for many of the people on the tour. Maybe they've been to different cathedrals in different cities in the U.S., um, some of them had traveled uh, abroad and perhaps seen European cathedrals, but this was like, even so, like that's that's the old world. This is the United States, and this is not how they think of American churches and what they should look like. So I think that was unsettling to sort of experience this building that's part of their tradition that looks nothing like what they would normally worship in. Um, and I mean, the National Cathedral, it's very high church. Very few of the people I was uh, working with are themselves sort of the high church uh, types with, you know, incense and kneelers and uh, vestments for clergy and stoles for different parts of the year. Like it's the, a lot of the sort of liturgical trappings of Episcopalianism were also just really, really foreign to the, the tourists who were by and large non-denominational Baptists, Methodists, like some variety of white evangelical uh, within that sort of group. So it was, you know, it just wasn't what they were used to and that was uncomfortable. Um, some of them criticized it. I remember one woman criticized it as like, this is just, it's too much. It's excessive. Jesus wouldn't want this. Jesus would spend money helping the poor. Um, just seeing it as sort of wasteful um, grandeur, um, which really is in some ways how they felt about a lot of the government buildings too, is this, this sense of um, 
you know, we're paying for this. This is our, these are our tax dollars. Why are we paying to mow such a gigantic lawn? Um, why are we paying for renovations on that building? It looks fine. Um, that sort of sense of like a proprietary ownership, but also it's not what they would have built. Um, it's too much. Um, and they, the, many of them expressed anxiety about sort of big government and that sort of thing, which I think these massive buildings along the mall really represent. Um, they're huge. Obviously, it's a big government. Um, and that's just what's in D.C. So I think it was uncomfortable for them in that way. The Supreme Court is just a really miserable place to visit, I have to say. Um, I was also deeply uncomfortable every time we were there, just physically, um, because there's great air conditioning, but really no place to sit down. Um, and when you're standing in line on a marble floor, even if it's 15 or 30 minutes, that's a long, long time, especially when you can't talk to each other. Um, so the security guards would come shush us um, and everyone would sort of bristle at the, the intrusion. Um, just, you know, it was, there were these little aggravations at that site that started um, with waiting outside in the sun, having to go through security, waiting in line inside, um, and then sort of the final indignity of very little Christian iconography being discussed at all. So there, it was sort of a, a buildup to this real sense of discomfort and alienation um, at that site, especially. I have um, a speculative question. So if you prefer not to answer, that's totally fair. Um, you mentioned before that you did all of your research um, and joined these tours when Obama was president. And I'm curious um, if you have any idea how these tours would be different or be nuanced under a Trump presidency. Would the narrative be the same or would it shift slightly um, under Donald Trump? It's a great question. And I've thought about this a lot because I'm watching how these narratives play out under the Trump presidency. And I really think they would be very much the same. Um, if anything, I think the outsider narrative and these roles of exiles and victims would be even stronger because Trump himself gives so much to work with um, in his own discussions of Christians in the United States. And I would very much expect that tour guides would be quoting President Trump talking about Christians as sort of marginalized, but he will save them, which is very, that's the, the narrative that he he uses um, his Fourth of July speech, for instance, was was full of that kind of language. Um, so I would anticipate that, yeah, even though he's in the White House, even though it's a Republican Congress, I really think, in some ways, that doesn't matter. In as, in the same way that you know the long history of Christian dominance in this country doesn't matter, because it's about what these roles let them accomplish politically. And they're going to want to maintain those roles because it's it's helpful to be able to shift between positions depending on what is politically expedient. Um, if in a you know for for a court's perspective or for sort of a public opinion, um, sometimes it's useful to be the underdog. Sometimes it's useful to be the one with the claim of the authority of tradition behind you. So I, I really think these narratives are going to be very much the same because I haven't seen the narratives themselves shift. If anything, they've just sort of dug in uh, with the help of President Trump. Mm -hmm. 
So we're approaching the end of our interview, but I have two final questions for you. Um, one is a bit broad, um, and we've touched on it throughout the interview, but I want to ask it a little bit more directly. What can we learn about white evangelicals by studying Christian heritage tours? It's a great question. Um, sort of the, the thing you have to ask yourself continually when you're writing anything like this is like, okay, but why does it matter? You know, who cares? Um, and for me, it really crystallized in the 2016 election cycle, which was right after I finished every, all the, all the field work and was sort of trying to make sense of it. Um, and it, it's just continued to be this way of people, people who are not white evangelicals pointing out white evangelicals hypocrisy or confusion or sort of depicting them as uh, misled or manipulated. Just, I mean, there's a, there's a long history of this. I mean, this happened uh, in the early nineties as well. Um, they were, uh, the Washington Post called white evangelicals uh, poor, uneducated and easy to command. Um, that just sense of like, they're, they're not really, they don't know what they're doing. Um, and that, I don't think is useful. Um, I think it's, it underestimates the huge range of reasons that humans have for making the decisions they do. Um, and I think it's really not for us to say whether their decisions make sense just because they don't fit into a, our particular expectation um, of how they should be behaving. That doesn't mean they're doing something anomalous. That means our expectations are actually off. So what I'm doing with this project is trying to shift expectations of like, okay, how would it make sense for someone who is a white evangelical, who identifies with these stories, who plays these roles, how would it make sense for them to respond to say the choice between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton? Um, or any of this, uh, um, the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, um, there's, there's different sort of flashpoints where it's, you get a lot of those litanies of why evangelicals are uh, not living up to their own standards or all, the, all these sort of judgments from outside the tradition. Um, and I just, I really think we need a way of understanding why it makes sense to them, um, why their own behaviors make sense to them, because without that, we're not able if we want to have a conversation with them about the issues, perhaps to persuade, perhaps just to understand, but without that sort of ability to see the world from their point of view, um, it's really going to be impossible to have a conversation like that or to make sense of why they're acting. And I think on a political level, it makes it far too easy to just reinforce the sort of narratives that keep them sort of very entrenched in this Christian nationalist conservative view. Um, you know, when you, when you tell someone, hey, you're crazy, you're a hypocrite, you don't know what you're doing with Christianity, that really reinforces the outsider narrative. Um, and I think we need to know how we, as in people who are not white evangelicals, we need to know um, how they're going to respond to what we're saying so we can be more thoughtful about it. Um, and really, at least at a political level, be strategic about it um, so that we're not just sort of digging our, ourselves in um, and making the divides in this country worse. So to end on a broad note, what are you working on now? I am teaching and it's great. 
Um, I'm there's a couple of things I've been playing around with um, how to incorporate uh, this idea of narrative and identity into my teaching more. Um, and I also work through the Religious Literacy Project with high school and community college teachers around the country. Um, so I've been working on some, some tools and examples for how to think about, um, using Arlie Hochschild's term now, uh, deep story. How do we look at for the deep stories in our culture? How do we ourselves sort of choose which ones we're inhabiting? Um, how do we use this idea of story to better understand the world we live in? Um, so that's what I've been having a lot of fun with this summer is, is working on those tools for teaching. And I'm also dancing around a project on uh, what I'm calling material culture wars um, because I love a good wordplay, much to my editor's chagrin. Um, but I'm interested in how uh, ambient religion plays into the culture wars insofar as objects come in and out of view depending on particular circumstances and for particular strategic reasons. Um, and I'm, I think there's something in there about categories of religion and secularization and some, some of the things that the, the religious studies uh, nerds will care about. Um, but I really just, I want to, yeah, I want to keep playing with this idea of ambient religion and the fluidity of objects in some ways, how they come in and out of you and how that informs the way we engage with them and with each other because these objects are so often mediating the culture wars. Well, thank you so much, Lauren, for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us about your book. It, it really was a pleasure to read it. It made me, I went to DC for the first time last April and reading your book made me want to go back and experience and like with experience DC with your work in mind. So, um, so thank you for, for sharing your, your work. It was really a pleasure to read. Um, Saving History, How White Evangelicals Tour the Nation's Capital and Redeem a Christian America is out now. <laughs>